Well, hey, Traders Point family. Those of you that are new to our church family, uh, my name is Aaron Brockett. I'm the lead pastor of our church and our family has been away on sabbatical this summer. And uh, we've been having a wonderful time, but we miss you so much. We've been praying for you. We've been hearing incredible reports about all God is continuing to do at our church. And we can't wait to be back with you very, very soon. Well, I wanna share some exciting campus updates with you. Um, if you recall, at the beginning of 2020, we had just launched our Midtown and Northeast campuses just a few weeks before the pandemic shut everything down. And we ended up having to make the agonizing decision to temporarily suspend those gatherings for the foreseeable future. Well, over the last year, we've been praying about when to relaunch those campuses. And through that process, our team has rallied around relaunching Midtown the 1st of 2022. We're really excited about that. Uh, for Northeast, we're still praying toward the best time to relaunch, but it's gonna come soon. Our decision to launch Midtown first has two reasons behind it. First, we wanted to create more space at our downtown campus and the proximity of Midtown to downtown opens up that opportunity. We also have a permanent location for our Midtown campus at the former Marsh Building at 62nd and Keystone, and we are super excited about that. Now, you may be wondering who's gonna lead Midtown. Now, we originally had launched that campus with Kyle Riley as the campus pastor, and then Kyle shifted to lead our downtown campus. Kyle has done an incredible job there, and after a lot of prayer, he will continue to pastor at Traders Point downtown. For Midtown, we're excited to announce that we have a new pastor joining us to lead that campus. His name is Alex Diaz, and he's moving here with his family from Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where he served as the teaching pastor. Alex is originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and he's been in the States for 17 years. He and his wife have three children, and they're so excited to be joining the Traders Point community, and we are so thrilled to have them. Now, the minute you meet Alex, you're gonna see how much energy and joy he has. He's extremely passionate about the local church and reaching people for Jesus, and he has a heart to further the multi-ethnic church across the globe. His energy is contagious, and I know you're gonna love it. Alex is joining our team this month, and he'll begin the process of building a team for the relaunch of Midtown. And I know he would appreciate your prayers for his family as they make the transition to Indy, and also for the mission of the gospel to be carried forward through his role here at Traders Point. We can't wait to see what God will do through Alex and the Midtown campus. Well, today, Kyle Riley is gonna be bringing our message. And so would you please put your hands together and show some love to our very own Kyle Riley. Thank you guys, so good to be here with you. Just wanna take a moment to welcome everybody at all of our campuses, anybody who's watching online. It is so good to be here with, uh, with all of you. And I just wanna take a moment. Can we all just celebrate our new Midtown Campus Pastor, Alex Diaz. Man, I am so excited. I had a chance to actually meet Alex a couple of months ago and get to know him a little bit. And from the moment we had our first conversation, it was, it was awesome. I think we were originally slated to talk for like 30 minutes or so. We ended up talking for over an hour and a half and just getting to know one another. Um, I had a chance to hang out with him and his wife. My wife and I did a couple of weeks ago. And just um, the more I get to know him and hear his heart, man, the more I fall in love with this guy. Uh, I love his heart for Jesus. I love his heart for his family 
for, uh, for people uh, and especially the local church and building the multi-ethnic church. And so we are excited for what God is going to do in and through him as well as with Midtown um, as well. Um, I had a chance to announce to our downtown campus last week that I was going to be continuing to, to shepherd them downtown. And man, it was awesome being able to hear the, the cheers and the encouragement. Um, it was just so amazing. And, I, and I'm, I'm thankful that I get to be a part, a, a small part in what God is doing here at this church and continue to serve at our downtown campus. Um, but it seems like yesterday when we did actually launch Midtown, for those of you who don't know, that launched last January, January of 2020. And man, it was phenomenal. We saw God do some incredible things and move in some incredible ways for a couple of weeks. And then, and then life hit. <laughs> life happened and COVID hit and, and we had to temporarily pause some things uh, and move some things around. But man, there is so much that I remember about Midtown, not just the launch itself, but everything leading up to the launch, the conversations that I was able to have and the people I was able to, to meet. Um, I specifically remember a moment where we announced to the church that I was stepping into this role as Midtown campus pastor and I was at the downtown campus and before the services, they brought my wife, Bree and I up on stage and prayed over us uh, in front of everybody. It was very, very powerful. Um, here's a picture of it right here. That's my wife, Bree and I. And I remember this um, for, for two reasons. One, uh, some of you may remember Petey Kinder who was on staff here. And this is our, our fearless teaching pastor, Ryan Bramlett, who has less hair than he has right now. Um, but I remember this because one, I chose to wear this uh, tropical Skittle colored sweater right here. Not sure what I was thinking there, but um, I also remember it because this was such a powerful moment. Um, back then we had four services, uh, two in the morning and two in the evening. So we did this four times um, and we got up and each and every time it was powerful, man. They prayed words of encouragement and blessing over Bree and, and, and me and, uh, and just really challenged us. And, um, and man, we were praying for Midtown and for God to do some just incredible things. And then after each service, people were coming up and just encouraging me as well and saying, we're so excited about Midtown. We can't wait. We're all in. And it was, it was, it was great. And I remember getting home, um, having dinner with the family, putting the kids to bed. And I remember just like sitting up in bed and thinking, what just happened? Like, what do I do now? I mean, this is incredible, but God, I am not qualified in the least bit to be doing this. I am not deserving of this opportunity. What am I going to do with what I have been, been given? Have any of you ever been there? It's the question that I just want to ask. Have any of you ever been in this space where now you realize you've been given something, something incredible, something phenomenal, uh, and an opportunity that you have, and you're saying, what, what do I do now? What do I do with what I have been given? Well, if you have, then I want to let you know that you are in good company with someone in the Bible. Um, and if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, for some of us, this may be a relatively new story, uh, but for others of us, it can be a somewhat familiar story. But I just want to encourage us to look at this story with some fresh eyes. Can we do that? Look at it with fresh eyes. I once heard um, our executive pastor, Greg, say, don't let the good news become old news. And that has stuck with me for an amount of time where I do not want familiarity to breed insensitivity with the gospel. And so I want us to always approach the Bible with fresh eyes and say, God, what do you want to teach me? And if we do that, I think what all of us will find, no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, you will find that all of us find ourselves in this space, this space where we realize, hey, I've been given something sacred, something valuable, something important, something precious. What do I do with it? 
What do I do while I am living in this space? And the Bible has something to say about it. So let's go ahead and look at John chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 1. And it says this. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. So I want us to pause right there because I have to give a little bit of context and paint the backdrop of what is going on here. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he doesn't even want to be in Jerusalem. If you read the chapter before this, John chapter 7, you'll see that um, there is this festival that is taking place called the Festival of Shelters. Um, it's also called the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And what this was, was the people of Israel coming to Jerusalem every year to commemorate the freedom from Egypt that their ancestors had, being freed from Egyptian slavery. And there was a time between that point and when they entered into the promised land where God just really showed his faithfulness to their ancestors. And they had to live in the wilderness and they were staying in, in these shelters or, or these booths. And God was just so faithful. And he said, I want you to remember this every year. Remember my faithfulness. And so every year the people of Israel would come to Jerusalem offer sacrifices, live in these, these shelters that they would build out of, out of palm branches. And Jesus doesn't want to be there. His brothers are trying to get him to go. And he's like, nah, I'm good. Y'all go ahead. Y'all go ahead without me. I'm just going to stay back here because he knew that the religious leaders were trying to plot against his death. Well, Jesus ends up coming for some reason. He makes his way to Jerusalem during this festival and he's trying to stay out of the way. It says that he's trying to be discreet. But about midway through the week, he ends up making his way to the temple and he starts to teach. It causes this huge uproar and everybody's like trying to debate about who he actually is. And the religious leaders get a little upset. They try to have him arrested. That doesn't end up working out and everybody goes home. But then Jesus comes back to the temple the next morning, not doing a good job of staying discreet. He comes to the temple the next morning and it says that he begins to teach and a crowd then begins to form around him. Don't miss that because that's important. So let's look at what happens next. In, uh, in verse 3, it says, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. All right. This is uh, quite the interruption, if you ask me. Um, I know we have a number of teachers at all of our campuses, and you may know a thing or two about being interrupted while you're a teacher or while you're teaching. And um, I've gotten quite used to it. I'm used to the, the crying babies and things while I'm preaching. I've gotten a little accustomed to that. But there was something that happened recently that I wasn't ready for, an interruption. Um, one of the, the benefits or one of the privileges that I have that I really enjoy is getting to perform weddings. I love getting to officiate weddings. And I was doing a wedding recently and it was a beautiful outdoor wedding. Um, everything was set up so elegantly and, and things are going according to plan. And uh, the bridal party comes down and uh, does the processional, and then the bride comes down, and it's like, da 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 They don't actually use that song anymore. It's more of like an Ed Sheeran song that every bride actually chooses. Um, <laughs> but anyway, she comes down, and, uh, and I begin to go into the, the ceremony. I pray and begin to just encourage the couple and tell everybody about, about the couple, how I, how I know them and all this uh, other stuff. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see the, the mother of the groom. She's front row. And she's like flagging me down, trying to get my attention. 
And I make eye contact with her and uh, she's like mouthing something and I can't make out what she's saying. So I'm like, all right, I'm not stopping. So I'm just going to keep going. Um, and then so I proceed to just tell everybody some more information about the couple, sharing some funny stories about premarital counseling that we did, um, some back history about the couple. And she's still like trying to get my attention. She's interrupting me at this point. And I make eye contact with her again and she's mouthing something and I can't, I can't make it out. And then finally she, she does this with her finger. She goes... And I'm like, is my zipper open? Like, what is, what is going on? If so, I'm not getting ready to stop and pull it up in front of all these people. It's <laughs> not what's going to happen. Um, and so I just, I keep going. A couple more minutes go by and then I make eye contact with my wife and my wife does this. And I'm like, what is going on? Well, then it dawned on me. We're about 10 minutes into the ceremony and I forgot to tell everybody that they could sit down. I'm surprised like people didn't just start dropping like flies because it was so hot and humid out there. And I was embarrassed. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, you know, just when I start getting comfortable with doing weddings, God has a way of hum uh, humbling me. Um, but Jesus didn't need to be humbled in this situation. He didn't need an interruption that was going to humble him. All right. But there's this interruption that happens where these religious leaders bring this woman and not just in front of Jesus, but John says they bring her in front of the whole entire crowd. Now, I have two things that I want to point out um, that are very important here. Um, they did something that was illegal for two reasons. Um, one, the law required that both parties who were caught in adultery to be brought in for, for judgment. They only brought the woman. My question is, where is the man here? So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing is they attempted to move straight to judgment and execution without giving this woman a fair trial. Does that sound kind of familiar? Did the same thing with Jesus. So they did something illegal here that they were not supposed to be doing, but they had these intentions of embarrassing not just the woman, but to embarrass Jesus as well. So let's look at what continues to happen in verse four. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But then Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Can you imagine what the woman was feeling in this moment? Like picture this with me for a second. Her very life is hanging on the words of Jesus, on his response. Whatever he says next in this moment determines her fate. And Jesus chooses to play Pictionary in the sand. <laughs> like I can't imagine what she was thinking. And so he, he bends down and he begins to, to write something or draw something in the sand. Now, um, many scholars differ on what it is that he was actually writing. Some say that he was writing um, an Old Testament scripture that related to adultery. Um, some say that he was writing one of the Ten Commandments. Others say that he was writing the names of the Pharisees in the sand, just making jokes. Others say that he was just doodling because that word write can actually be translated as, as draw. Widely debated among scholars what he was, what he was writing. And even though they differ on the content of what he was writing, all of them agree that what was most significant wasn't necessarily the content, but what was required in order for him to write. Meaning that he didn't just bend over and write in the sand. No, it said that he actually stooped down, which is an act of humility. He got low. And in this moment, what he's doing is he's resonating and identifying with the lowness of this woman. He's saying, hey, I see you right now. Hey, I am with you right now. I, I care for you right now. And how many of you know that when we are in a pit, that Jesus does the exact same thing with us? 
that when we are down in our mess, Jesus isn't up there saying, hey, how's it going down there? Hey, it really must suck to be you, man. Yeah, like, that's hard. Yeah, I'll be up here. My arm will be extended. Whenever you get enough strength to, to muster up some strength to, to come up here, just grab my arm. No, he doesn't do that. What Jesus does, because his spirit, his very spirit is in us, it means he is with us in the pit. He's down here with us. I'm like, hey, yeah, I know. Yeah, it sucks, man. But I'm with you. And I'm not just going to pull you out. I'm going to walk with you as you come up out of this pit. And so Jesus is letting her know, hey, I am, I am with you. I see you. I hear you in this moment. And then we'll see how this continues to, to play out. It's, it's brilliant. Look at what, uh, what happens in verse 7. It says, they, talking about the religious leaders, kept demanding an answer. I almost imagine them like badgering Jesus, like pestering him, like, tell us what to do. What do you say? What do you think we should do with this woman? And then it says, so he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. For some reason, John wants us to know the significance of this crowd being here. And now it's only Jesus and this woman who are left in the crowd. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating how Jesus responded because he didn't say to punish her. Yet at the same time, he didn't just overlook her sin and say, don't punish her. Jesus knew that he was the only one who had never sinned and was the only one that had the right to throw a stone. And he chooses to use his grace to teach her a lesson and to show her something. And it's fascinating because what he did was he was saying, hey, I want justice to be rightly and fairly administered here in, in this moment. And so finally, Jesus chooses to have a conversation with this woman. After all this has taken place, he has a conversation with her. And we see, see him say some of the most beautiful words that we see in the New Testament. Look at what he says in verse 10. It says, then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And then Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, there's so much that we can actually um, unpack here from, from the scripture, theologically and, all, and all, all of that. But I just want you to know, like, when I was reading this, I actually got a little bit frustrated. I got mad because it ends here. Like, I'm like, what happens? What happens next? What happens with this woman? Why can't we find out what happens? I almost wondered, like, I was wishing as I was reading this, like that little Netflix bar would pop up at the end of the episode. You know what I'm talking about? That like counts down <laughs> to, the, to the next episode to let you know how much time is left. I'm like, what happens? I got to know what happens with this woman. I wish John would have like followed up with her and find, find out how her life played out. But then I realized how creepy that probably would have been. Could you imagine John just going around to like the Jerusalem local bars and being like, hey, so uh, anybody know what's going on with that adulterous woman? <laughs> oh, me? Oh, I'm just a follower of Jesus. Uh, asking for a friend. <laughs> would have been kind of creepy. But regardless of the fact that we don't really know how all of this plays out, we do know that here's a woman with a checkered past who has just encountered God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, and has just encountered this remarkable amount of grace. And here's what we can infer. I began wondering, what did this look like for her? Being in this space now where she's encountered God's grace, what, what, what happens? 
I think there's multiple elements to it. Um, physically, we can, we can draw some conclusions. We know that there's this crowd of these people who have all seen what just happened, who all know what she was about. Some of them may know her personally, maybe a little bit too well. Um, and what they are seeing now is that she has just encountered grace and God told her, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Do you think those people now are kind of drawing conclusions about her? Do you think those people now are probably just waiting for her to go back to the life that she once had? That if she goes back to Jerusalem, she's like walking on eggshells because everybody knows the life that she came from and they're just waiting for her to mess up again? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in this space where you've chosen to follow Jesus, but now there's this crowd, friends or family members or whoever, who are just kind of waiting for you to go back to the life that you used to live? Have you ever been there? There's a... Um, there's a mental component to it. I wonder what her, 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 her mentality was like going forward. I wonder if voices started shouting her down in her head, reminding her about her past and what she used to be and the shame and the guilt and, and the fear that she probably had. You are your mistakes. You are your past. There's an um, emotional component to it. I started wondering, what was the day-to-day -day emotional life like for her after this? I started wondering, um, I wonder if every time she saw some kids playing in the dirt, did she get teary-eyed because it reminded her of what Jesus did? I wondered if every time she saw a pile of stones just laying there on the ground, if she wept because it reminded her of how her life was spared, that one of those very stones could have taken her life. And then I started thinking about the spiritual component, this big one where she's encountered God's grace and he said, I don't condemn you. I go and sin no more. She's like, how does that work? Like, I'm not, I'm not condemned, but here I am having to toe this line now and I, I have to not sin anymore. I want to go back to this life. I wonder if she was tempted to go back to the life that she lived, all that she knew. Have any of you ever been there? If you are a follower of Jesus, each and every one of us now live in this space where we've encountered the grace of God. And from that moment to the life that we go to be with God, we are in this space where it's like, okay, what do I do now? Does the Bible even have a word for it? Does Jesus give verbiage to the space that we're in? And I want you to know that he does. And it's beautiful. And the word is freedom. We get to live in freedom. Jesus calls us to live in freedom, to be free in him. But let me just tell you that there is a little bit of danger in me throwing a word like freedom out to those of us living in a 21st century Western society because freedom is subjective. Freedom to you doesn't necessarily look like freedom to the person sitting next to you or even to the people around you. A lot of different factors can depend on location, uh, it can depend on financial status. It can depend on the season of life that you are in. Uh, case in point, um, for some of us, freedom looks like it comes in the form of this device right here, all right, where it allows you to, to do what you want, explore a world outside of this. It takes you places where you can find out information. It allows you to talk to who you want, when you want, how you want. Um, it allows you to explore and communicate with people via social media and express certain interests, interests via social media. Uh, for the record, I'm a little jealous of teenage boys where in order to express interest in a young girl, all they have to do is like her picture these days. <laughs> Guys, do you remember back in the day having to call a young girl's house and her dad answering the phone? Do you remember how fearful you were just stumbling over your words? Like, um, uh, 
Uh, can I speak to, uh, uh, click, <laughs> just hanging up. For others of us, uh, maybe teenagers, freedom looks like this. You get a set of car keys and you now have access to your own transportation. You no longer have to re uh, rely on people to take you places. You can now go where you want, when you want, with who you want. And some parents of teenagers in the room right now are like, uh-uh, that location share better be on. I need to know where you're going. Uh, for some of us, freedom looks like this. Mm, stepping on a little bit of toes now. This allows you to get what you want, go where you want, buy what you want, and nobody can tell you any different. Let's be honest, some of our garages look like an Amazon warehouse right now, all right? And some of you are on a first name basis with the delivery guy. Thanks, Mike, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> For others of you, freedom is financial, but in a different sense. Mm. You've been watching the Dave Ramsey, listening, doing the written budget, and you're like, money is no longer gonna control this house. We're getting debt free. It's different for us. For some of us, freedom looks like this thing right here. All the guys and all the campuses just popped up. Yeah, that's freedom for me. Now you preaching, pastor. You got a six pack under there too. I'll really be freed in. <laughs> nah, but freedom is us getting away, hitting the links with the guys. And it doesn't have to be golf. You don't have to be a guy. You can replace this with anything, anything that allows you to disconnect and to no longer have to deal with the worries and the cares of this life where you get to, you get to be free. All of us are subject to it. But even though freedom looks different for all of us, the goal of freedom is the same. All of us want a, some sort of independence. All of us want to be able to do what I want to do, when I want, with who I want, with no restrictions and with no authority, no limitations. It's independence. But then there comes this point where we have to actually compare what our version of independence and freedom actually looks like with what Jesus says freedom looks like. And that's a hard thing to do because our version of freedom often bumps up against Jesus' version of freedom and it looks a little bit different. And when we come to follow Jesus, he says, hey, I want you to be free. I want you to have freedom, but it might not be in the same sense that you think freedom actually looks like. So what does Jesus say freedom actually looks like? Well, if you're taking notes, there are two things that I want you to write down. When Jesus says that we are free, the first thing he says is that we are free from the penalty of sin. Meaning that because of his death and resurrection, we no longer have to fear the eternal consequences of our sin eternal separation from him forever in hell. Because he took the punishment for us, we now can place our trust and our faith in him. And now we get to be free from the penalty of sin. And most of us tend to be like, yep, sign me up for that. I wanna to go to heaven when I die, we're good there. But it's the other part of this that trips most of us up. Because not only are we free from the penalty of sin, but we are also free from the power of sin. That because of the fall that happened in Genesis chapter 3, um, we came under the, do the dominion and the power of, of, of sin. It, it was a curse that began to control us. And now selfishness and pride and ego and independence and, and self-reliance and sexual immorality, all these things uh, began to, to try to control us. And if we're honest, um, many of us like to be controlled by those things. We, we say, hey, I even have a right to indulge those things. It's fun to indulge those things. I heard someone say, hey, if sin is not fun to you, you're just not doing it right. 
And some, for some of us, that's true. For many of us, that's true. But then Jesus says, hey, I have something new for you. I've died to free you from that. I want a new life for you. And Jesus' words to this woman was him confirming that she is free from both the penalty and the power of that sin. And I don't think that um, his words were just for this woman. I think that these words were for everyone who was in earshot of this conversation, where you have this moment where everybody is here to essentially be a part of this festival where they are celebrating independence, where they are celebrating the freedom of their ancestors until they made it to the promised land and God's faithfulness. And God, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to actually show them and tell them what true freedom actually looks like. And he says, hey, 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 I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I think everybody who was there needed to not only see that, but to hear it as well, because they needed their perception of freedom to be changed. Now, this whole time, I think some of you have been looking at me like, why would he give her this assignment? Like, is this even possible for her not to sin? And I hear you because as humans, we have this natural propensity uh, to do the very thing that we're told not to do. Like you tell a kid, don't touch the stove. What do they do? They touch the stove. Or in this very moment, if I was to say, hey, do not think about barbecue. Most of you just thought about hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken, or ribs, be honest. And you've been thinking about barbecue since the moment you walked into church. Ain't listening to nothing I said. We do what we don't want to do. So why would Jesus tell her not to sin anymore? If you're thinking that he was giving her this command to go out and to just be a better person or to do it on her own or that she could free herself, then you are still thinking about independence. And the Bible has something totally different to say about freedom. Because if you are thinking that she needs to go and actually be independent, Jesus is telling her something very different. And whenever we see the word freedom in the Bible, it's actually connected to something a little bit deeper. It's actually always connected to not something, but someone. And that's the Holy Spirit. Anytime you see freedom talked about in the New Testament, there's always either before it or around it or, 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 or after it, this talk about the Spirit of God because we need to rely on the Spirit of God in order to actually live in true freedom. And so you need to know this, that biblical freedom is not independence, but it's actually a transfer of dependence. Meaning that what I once relied on, what I once depended on, my self-reliance, my self-sufficiency, or the things of this world that I began to rely on to bring satisfaction that ultimately lead to emptiness. God is saying, no, I need you to transfer your dependence that you have on that. And I need you to transfer it to my spirit because he is the only one who is going to take up residence in you and give you the ability to live in obedience to what I'm telling you to do. We transfer our dependence from ourselves and our things and the things of this world. Go ahead. If y'all going to clap, you can clap. We transfer dependence from ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And he says, hey, no, you are now under new management. My spirit has taken up residence in you. I want you to walk with him. And when he told the woman to go and sin no more, Jesus was essentially telling this woman, hey, transfer your dependence to me, to my spirit. He will guide you. He will empower you. He will sustain you. That's the only way that you'll truly be free. And so now we're thinking, okay, so what about us? How do we live this out? What does this mean for us? And I think we can take comfort in the fact that this woman is not alone here. In fact, a lot of new Christians, a lot of new believers, as they start to follow Jesus, they also find themselves in this space. 
to the point that most of the New Testament is the apostles writing back to, to, to new believers and to churches, telling them what to do with this new freedom that they have. You got Paul saying, hey, hey, I know, yes, you are free in Christ, but don't use your freedom to do that. Use your freedom to do this. Hey, 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 I heard that this is going on amongst your church and you're being tempted to do this. Let me remind you about the grace of God and what it leads us to actually do. And that's what's beautiful about the Bible. It's a bunch of imperfect people depending on a perfect God. And as we look at practical takeaways from, from this, I think we can ask ourselves two questions. Two questions that will help us to be able to live in true freedom. And here's the first question. Does my life reflect a desire for independence or dependence on the Spirit? Independence or dependence on the Spirit? This is a hard question for us to ask if we're being honest because it confronts us with ourselves. We're forced to look at some of our selfishness and some of our pride and say, okay, am I succumbing to those things or am I depending on the Spirit to actually lead me? Now, when I first started following Jesus, I was uh, being discipled in, in a Baptist church. And one of the phrases that would be thrown out all around was, help me, Holy Ghost. Help me, Holy Ghost. And I've had to adopt that in my life uh, with these kids. Uh, help me, Holy Ghost. <laughs> Lord, Jesus, help me. Um, in my marriage, help me, Holy Ghost, to be able to serve my wife, to not respond with my flesh or with what I want to do, but to, to love her the way that she, you've called me to love her. Help me to, to, to do this um, in ministry. God, help me with these church folk. Uh, kidding. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> no, but seriously, every time I walk into the doors of the church, I have to say, hey, Spirit, you're going to have to lead me. Because if I show up, it's going to be bad news. You don't want Kyle to show up. The Spirit, you have to lead me in everything that I do. The things that I watch and consume and take in, I want them to be edifying to me. Spirit, lead me in what I am imagining and what I am looking at. I have to have the Spirit lead me in everything that I do. I've used this scripture before, but I think it's so relevant. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. And if we're honest, our sinful nature craves the very things that God says for us not to do. And he wants us to be free and we like to succumb to that and we say, okay, I am entitled to be free. But God says, no, you're not entitled to be free in that way. I have something so much better for you, something so much more for you. Trust me. And I'm not just going to give you the command to do it, but I'm going to give you the power to do it as well. Because freedom isn't a license to do what we want. It's the power to do what God wants. And we have to be able to know that in order to be actually free, we have to lean on the Holy Spirit. And here's the second question that we can ask ourselves. What am I doing with what I've been given? What am I doing with what I have been given? How am I using the freedom that I have once I've experienced this grace of God? How am I living in this space now, what am I doing with this freedom that I now have? And thankfully, we don't have to think too hard on it because Paul also gives us some instructions about what to do with this freedom. In the very same passage, he says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And I love that because essentially what Paul is saying is that your freedom is not just about you. Your freedom is about others. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. So the question is, how am I using my freedom? Can I talk to, to singles in the room and at all of our campuses? How are you using your freedom? How are you using this, this space that you are in? Because singleness is a gift and it's not just a waiting room for marriage. 
So how are you using your freedom in your relationships? How are you using your freedom in, in your friendships? How are you using your freedom with, with how you prioritize your time and choosing to abstain sexually until marriage? Because all of it has a purpose and, and it's able to point to Jesus and a help to serve other people. How are you using your freedom? For those of you who have been walking with Jesus for some time and you're a little bit seasoned, how are you using your freedom? Can I tell you that we have countless people who are relatively new to their faith, young believers who are craving mentorship, who are craving discipleship, who are hoping to get into groups with somebody who is a little bit more seasoned in their walk so that they can be shown what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. How are you using your freedom? For my retired folk in the room, you've made it to the promised land. God bless you. I cannot wait to get there. How are you using your freedom? Because if I'm honest, it's, it's more than going on trips and playing golf. We have young couples and young people who are, who are hungry to be shown what it looks like to walk with Jesus, where you can pull up a chair next to them and not just tell them what it looks like to walk with Jesus, but to say, hey, I've been there. I've made mistakes, but this is how Jesus redeemed me. This is how I've been walking with him over the years. The list goes on. No matter what season of life you are in right now, you have an opportunity to use your freedom to help other people. Because I don't know if you've heard the, um, the expression, um, hurt people hurt people. That's very true. But this is also true. That free people, free people. Free people, free people. And God is saying, hey, I want you to use your freedom, not just for yourself, but to free other people. Don't worry about the opinions of the crowd. And for some of you, that's what's been tripping you up. It's like, man, I want to follow Jesus. I want to go all in for him. Man, but I'm so worried about what my friends are going to think. I'm so worried about what my family's going to think. What are they going to look like if I start actually living this stuff out? And he also says, don't worry about your past. Don't worry about the crowd. Don't worry about your past. I've died to free you from both. What are you going to do with what I have given you? I remember um, being in, in, in grad school, and this was a, uh, a relatively busy season of my life. I remember I was, um, I was teaching college courses, I was an assistant college basketball coach at the school, and I was in, in grad school. And subsequently, I just um, got unprioritized and unfocused and started slipping in some of my academics. And um, I remember being in this particular course where I had to get um, at least a B on this exam in order to pass the class with a C. And um, it was one of those exams where the, the teacher gives you um, a, an array of topics, but only a couple of them are going to be on, on the test, which makes it that much more difficult. And this wasn't multiple choice. This is all essay. All right. So I don't even have a 25% chance of getting this right. I got to go all in. So I remember sitting down, taking the test, and I'm going through the questions. And I know most of, most of them, but I get to the last question. And I have absolutely no idea what this question is asking. Like, I can't even use context clues to try to figure it out. And so I'm like, all right, I got a choice here. I can leave it blank and turn it in and I will likely fail this test. Or I can go with plan B. <laughs> and this was plan B. Students, I don't advise this. I said, hey, I, I did not study this topic. Um, I studied everything else except this one. This one got by me. Please give me grace, period. <laughs> and I remember turning that test in and like beelining it to my car, like just in shame, right? Like, I can't believe I just did that. Um, but I remember a couple days go by and I come back into the class and he's passing the test back out that have been created. And he gives me my test and I look at it and you know what I got? 
an F. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I, got a, I got a B. And I'm like, how in the world did this happen? So I immediately go to the last question and I look at it. And to my surprise, he had given, not full credit, but he'd given me just enough credit. That would have been the difference between a C and, and, and a B. And I'm like, why in the world did this happen? It worked. Uh, that's what I thought. <laughs> it's about to be my study method. From now on, I'm just going to do this. Um, but I remember waiting until everybody cleared out of the class after, afterwards and just going up to him and be like, hey, man. Like, I don't know why you did this, but I just want to, want to thank you. And I'll never forget the response that he gave me. He said, yeah, I know a thing or two about getting something that you don't deserve. But Kyle, here's the question. What are you going to do with it? And I remember just being like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but thanks for the B. Uh, <laughs> appreciate you, bro. But then I, I remember a couple more days go by and he sends out an email to the class just thanking us for the opportunity to teach us and wishing us well in our future endeavors. And I'll never forget that for the first time all semester, I noticed the signature of his email. And it said his name and it said his title. And underneath the, the title was a quote. And the quote said, Lord, help me be the kind of person that my dog thinks I am. And I remember looking at that like, that's kind of cheesy. Um, but okay. But then it dawned on me, like I started putting two and two together. And I remember a particular portion of the class, um, this was an exercise science class, and he was teaching us about the lungs and about oxygen deprivation, like lack of oxygen to the lungs. And he used Roman crucifixion as an illustration. Where he, I don't know if you know what actually killed Jesus on the cross. It wasn't blood loss. It was asphyxiation, meaning lack of oxygen to the lungs. When they crucified people, um, all of the weight would push down on their lungs so much so that it was hard to breathe. And the person being crucified would have to, to push up on their feet, which was nailed to a cross, just to get a gasp of air <gasps> before they had to go back down. And could you imagine Jesus, after being whipped and beaten, like the scars on his back, how, like rubbing up against that wood in order to do that, like how painful that would have been? I remember him teaching us in that moment about Jesus. This was a non-Christian university. And he was using his freedom to plant little seeds in people, not just with what he said, but also with what he did. Say what you want about how fair or unfair it was for him to do that on my test. He knew that he had been given something and now he had a responsibility to use his freedom to help free other people. And little did he know that I was a season of my life where I was actually exploring Christianity, where I was wondering, could this be true? Where I was wondering, who, who is Jesus? Little did he know that that very next year I would give my life to Jesus, walk away from coaching college basketball and begin pursuing ministry. He knew what he had been given. He knew that free people, free people, and he was using the space that he was in to live it out. And God says, hey, I have given you freedom that because of Jesus, you no longer have to worry about the penalty of your sin. That was transferred onto me when I went to the cross. You are free. You don't have to worry about that. Don't worry about the opinions of the crowd. Don't worry about your past. I've died to free you from both of those. Now live for me, but you cannot do it alone. Because he says now you need to transfer that dependence, that independence that you had that's so natural to you, transfer it on to my spirit because I'm going to lead you and I'm going to guide you. And now you're in this space where you say, what will I do with what I've been given? And God says, depend on my spirit and free other people. 
that's what you do in this space. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your undeserved, unmerited grace, giving us what we don't deserve. And God, I pray in this moment that if there is anybody either here at our campuses or who are watching this right now who have never experienced that, but who long to, who long to know about your love and your grace, that you would meet them right here in this moment and that you would help them to know that you love them and that you want to lavish your grace upon them, that you don't just overlook their sin, but that, that, that grace came with a cost. You paid for it with the, the flesh and blood of your son. And now we get to live in this space of freedom where we're no longer bound by the penalty of our sin, but we're also no longer bound by the power of it. You have given us your spirit that lives within us, that frees us. And now we get to live a life that is dependent on you. I God, I pray for anybody here who is struggling with that, who wants to go back to bondage, who wants to go back to the life that seems so enticing and seems so pleasing, that you would let them know that you have something so much better for them. Would you speak to them right now? And then lastly, God, speak to those of us who are wondering, what do we do with this space that we are in right now? How do we live in our freedom? God, help us to depend on you, but also help us to be on mission to go and to free others so they can experience the same freedom that we have encountered. And God, we promise to give you the glory and all the praise and all the honor as that happens because you reign above it all. There is no one who deserves the praise except for you. And so as you reign, God, help us to glorify you, not just with our words, but with our freedom. We thank you and love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.